0: That's good. Thanks for that setup. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about the pool boy days here in a bit. So, um, yeah, so it's not a, a typo or a misprint on who's preaching this morning. I think there's probably some, like, what? Has he ever done this before? So so every, every year, the Youth of Grace do a fundraiser called Dinner Theater. Uh, it's for summer mission trips. And I know a lot of you have attended, a lot of you have supported the youth group in that way and we're thankful for that. Uh, And a few months ago when we had it back in April, there happened to be a skit entitled A Day in the YOG Office. Uh, And the premise for this skit was that Bill walks into the youth office and uh, lets Chase Hogan, I know Chase is our middle school coordinator, I don't know where he is, but uh, we share an office together, work together. And, uh, and Chase was letting, or Bill was letting Chase and I know that we're preaching on that next Sunday uh, because no one else was available. There's the comedy right there. <laughs> um, well, be careful what you write in the dinner theater skits because um, this one came true. The youth guy is preaching. Um, Chase, you can sit for now. Uh, but I promise to keep the use of the word dude to a minimum, as you heard in this skit. Um, that will hopefully be the only time I say that word. Uh, for real, though, I do consider it a blessing to be able to preach here um, at Grace this morning, although I must admit I am more comfortable about eight feet to my right with a guitar on. I debated whether or not I should preach with the guitar on just to kind of have, you know, hold my baby. But... Uh, <laughs> But no, I'll 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 be a big boy here, and I trust that uh, that God will use His Word to challenge and convict and encourage us today as we as we look uh, at the Scriptures together. So, turn in your Bibles, please, with me to Matthew eight, Matthew chapter eight. We're going to read verses five through thirteen. And as you're turning there, please bow your heads with me and pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we open your word this morning, uh, we do pray for humble hearts. We pray for ears to hear. We pray for a mind to understand and for the will to respond. Uh, We know that this is the very word of God and your word to us. And so we pray that your spirit would help us to understand it, but not just understand it, but that it would work itself out in obedience in our lives. So, God, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I will begin reading from uh, Matthew 8, verse 5, uh, 5 through 13. When he had entered Capernaum, he being Jesus, you probably could figure that out, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, "'Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly.' I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And together we say, The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, we live in an increasingly wireless world, don't we? We do not like our cords. Um, Things that used to tether us, we are now free from. We even have remote access to things that used to require our presence to be there uh, to interact with. For example, I can be at a coffee shop. Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm just making it known publicly that I can be at a coffee shop and I can log on to my bank and I can actually like pay bills and transfer money and do that not even going to the bank. I know, that would have been revolutionary like 30 years ago, right? Or I could actually pull my phone out if I had it and adjust the thermostat in my home without even being there. Isn't that crazy? I mean, think about that. We just take it for granted. Or, doctors, have you heard this? There's this thing called the Da Vinci robot surgeon. They can operate on people hundreds of miles away without even being there. And now, what we read this morning for our text is what I could call a miracle of the wireless kind. Um, Jesus was actually way ahead of the technological curve there because he healed somebody from a distance. And that's one of the reasons why I've always been drawn to this passage. But I'm also drawn to it because of the comment made about Jesus. And Matthew records it, that Jesus marveled at someone's faith. Or as the NIV puts it, Jesus was amazed when he heard this. And that has to make us pause and consider, what is it that amazed Jesus? And there's another moment in the life of Jesus where he marveled, but it was actually a marveling at unbelief in Mark 6 6, rather than someone's exemplary faith. And as we see in this passage, a miracle does occur. A paralytic is healed, and while this is amazing, the healing is not what seems to take center stage. What Matthew wants for us to see, and thus I think what God wants us to see this morning, is what true, genuine faith looks like. See, it's no surprise to us that there are many who claim to be Christians. Who check the box on a ballot or a survey and yet, and maybe even go to church regularly. But beneath the surface, their hearts are still hardened. Their real allegiance is still to themselves and they worship their own autonomy. But as we'll see in today's passage, in Jesus is found all authority and all power. And therefore, by faith, we must humbly submit to him and to his purposes in the world. And so I want to ask this morning, what does a faith... That amazes Jesus look like You could put it this way What is faith that pleases God? And so to understand this I want to begin by looking a little bit at the context In which this scene occurs You see the Gospel of Matthew Is written primarily for a Jewish audience And his purpose in writing his Gospel Is to demonstrate that the Hebrew Scriptures That have been written have been long pointing to a Messiah Jesus And he has come He is the one who will inaugurate the kingdom of God And Matthew shows through his gospel that Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness and renewal, not just for Israel, not just for Jewish believers, but to non-Jewish or Gentile followers as well. And so what Matthew does is he uniquely unfolds the work of Jesus for the Jewish reader with constant recurring allusions to Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Um, If you turn to the left a little bit, to Matthew 4 in your Bibles, We'll see Jesus speak of his purpose for coming. So look at Matthew 4, verse 17. This is very early in Jesus' ministry where it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then further down in verse 23, Matthew records, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread, and then down in 25, and great crowds followed him. You see, Jesus drew a following as he was teaching, as he was proclaiming the gospel, doing miraculous works of healing, and ultimately his miraculous work of his dying on the cross and rising from the dead. That was his purpose. And so as we turn back now to chapter 8, you'll notice something in your Bibles if you have a red letter edition. There's a lot of red there, right? What, what we're seeing here is, is his teaching on the great Sermon on the Mount, where he taught about what life in this gospel um, of the kingdom looks like. He teaches what genuine faith really is. And it's interesting to note the reaction of the crowd. So look at chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And so what follows this sermon provides the proof that Jesus did have authority, not just to speak those things that he would say, but that he had power over everything. It was proof that the kingdom of God had arrived. And there's this pattern you see in the book of Matthew. If you were to read through it and see discourses of teach Jesus' teaching, and then he would prove it uh, validated, if you will, by miracles. I mean, just in chapter 8 alone, we see Jesus' power over nature as he calms a storm. We see his power over demons as he cast out demons from two men and threw them into some pigs. Um, his power over disease, where he heals the man of leprosy. And then in our passage today, his power over paralyzed and suffering people. And so with that context in mind, we want to look at the story of the centurion's faith and considering what faith that amazes Jesus looks like. Now, before I go any further, I need to be honest. Not that I wouldn't be honest or lie to you guys today. But I I need to clear this up first because I don't always think of Jesus being amazed at me. I mean, I know He loves me, and I know He's my Savior, and I know He's my friend, but I oftentimes more view myself as a sinner in His sight, and, and rightly so, right? Like, but, but I often see myself as one who continually fails Him, as one who wants to do what's right, but I don't always do it. And so while this is an accurate view of myself, if I am in Christ, which I am, I need to allow myself the thought that that I actually can have a faith that pleases or amazes Jesus. I need to also see myself as one who is a new creation, right? As one who is uh, forgiven and cleansed and united with Christ. And as God looks at me, what he sees is Jesus and he is pleased. You see, the real problem comes when we don't see ourselves as sinners and don't see ourselves rightly in relation to God. Our pride and our self-reliance inhibits us from fully trusting in Jesus. We so easily follow our own comforts or our independence and our desires, and our selfishness can cause us to be insensitive to all the needs around us. But thankfully, that's why Jesus came, to meet us where we are and to change our hearts. And so I want to suggest this morning that there are three things from this interaction between Jesus and the centurion that we can learn to have faith that amazes Jesus. Um, so for those of you taking notes at home, if you want to want to follow along. Amaze Jesus, this is number one. Amaze Jesus with humility and compassion. Uh, secondly, we amaze Jesus by submitting to his authority. And third, amaze Jesus with genuine faith. And so let's begin with amazing Jesus with humility and compassion. Uh, where do we find this? In verse 5, I'll reread 5 and 6. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So first of all, who is this centurion? We don't know his name, but we knew, do know a bit about centurions. We know that they're high-ranking officers in the Roman army, uh, roughly in charge of 100 men. Um, he's a professional soldier uh, within the pagan army that occupied Judea in that day. Now, centurions were not the highest-ranking officers, but they weren't the lowest either. Oh, and this is important. A centurion was a Gentile. Someone outside the nation and blessing of God's chosen people, Israel. And the scriptures typically show centurions in a positive um, light. It's highly regarded. You might remember um, the the time at the crucifixion of Jesus where a centurion was known to say, surely he was the son of God. He got it. Right, He understood who Jesus was. And then in Acts 10, we read of a centurion named Cornelius, who in a dream was instructed to call for the apostle Peter to come to his house. And when Peter arrived, they began talking all about Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit filled them all, and Cornelius and all in his household were baptized. He got it as well, didn't he? And this is fascinating, because you would think more often it would be the Jewish leaders that would get it, who would understand who Jesus was, because they had the Old Testament scriptures, But sadly, many didn't see Jesus as the true Messiah sent from God. Um, We get a few more details about this particular centurion in the telling of this same story from Luke's gospel. In Luke's account, we learn that the centurion had an affinity for the Jewish nation. In Luke 7, 5, he says, For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. See, this man was sympathetic towards Jews because he was a man of faith. He got it. And it's a big deal. It might be hard for us to understand or know, but it was a big deal for a Jew and Gentile to associate together because according to the Jewish law, a, a person was considered ceremonially unclean if they were to associate with a Gentile. But nevertheless, this man approached Jesus by faith and in humility and compassion for his servant. See, we see this humility in how he addressed Jesus. He calls him Lord, right? Both times he speaks to him. He recognizes Jesus as Lord, that he is the one greater, and that that Jesus is greater, and he is less. Um, and then further in verse 8, we see his humility in recognizing that he's not even worthy to have Jesus come to his house. Although Jesus had already said, I will come and heal him, which you would think that's a great end to the story. Jesus, just go to the house, heal the dude. Be, oh, I wasn't going to say that again. <laughs> heal the man, the servant. And be on the way. I really was trying hard. <laughs> that was not plain. It's not on my notes, I promise. Um, it would have been a good spot to stop the story, but there's more, right? There's more that we need to see and know. Um, instead, uh, after resisting, after the centurion resists Jesus' offer, he says no. He acknowledged that all Jesus had to do was say the word. Now, we don't know if the centurion had heard the Sermon on the Mount or if he had just seen Jesus heal the leper moments before, Um, but we do know that Capernaum was the town where Jesus was living and that this centurion had heard about Jesus. His faith was such that he knew that all Jesus had to do was speak a word and it would happen, to just say a word. That's great faith. To be in the presence of Jesus, who possesses such power and authority, should cause one to feel humbled, and rightly so. It's, an, it's a natural, appropriate response to the presence of God. And in every occasion in Scripture where you see man uh, able to see the glory of God, he is always brought low, he is always humbled. Um, turn to Isaiah 66 if you want, if you're fast enough. If not, you can just listen. Uh, The last chapter of the book of Isaiah says this The first two verses Thus says the Lord Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be declares the Lord Basically, he's saying, I hang out in heaven, it's my throne, and my footstool is the earth, I've made it all, I'm God, right? And then he says in the second half of verse 2, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, God views the humble person as one to whom he will look. In other places in scripture, it says the humble he will lift up, the humble he will give grace on uh, Jerry Bridges, a uh, familiar author and speaker to us, at least as a church, but also um, around the world, he speaks about humility this way in his book, The Practice of Godliness. He says, humility opens the way to all other godly character traits. It's the soil in which the other traits of the fruit of the spirit grows. So do you want to amaze Jesus? Humble yourself before the Lord. Because flowing from a humble heart comes compassion towards others, right? It's the soil in which that fruit of the Spirit grows. And this centurion's motivation for coming up to Jesus was because of somebody else's need, not his own. He was approaching this famous, well-known Jewish man, the one claiming to have power and authority over everything regarding his lowly servant. He was motivated by the needs of another and this servant was described as being paralyzed and suffering terribly. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever slept on your arm weird, and you wake up in the middle of the night and, like, you can't move it. Like, how does that feel? It's awkward, right? It's, it's also frustrating because you've woken up now in the middle of the night and realized that your sleep is disrupted. But it's helpless, right? So you try and use your other arm and try and get it back to life again. But it's just weird. Now, imagine that f- your whole body paralyzed, unable to move, Sitting on a bed, possibly organs shutting down in pain. What a helpless feeling. I mean, it would be devastating. But compassion compelled the centurion to act on behalf of his servant. And thus he was commended by Jesus for it. And you know, it makes me sad, actually, to think of the times where I have not been compelled. Where I have um, either been just blind to the needs around me uh, or just um, known and not acted in faith. You know, we all know there are needs and needy people in the world. Our struggle is oftentimes to know what sufferings or what needs we are to enter into, right? Um, let's face it, it's much easier to kind of sit by and hope the next guy steps up, right? So we don't have to be like, okay, got that covered, we're good. But there are stories we hear all the time of people being in need, whether it's close to home here or far off. And we're genuinely moved. But do we act on it? Or do we just let it kind of disappear from our minds? I mean, what was the last thing you heard about that caused you to think or feel compelled to act on? That made you think, like, Lord, you are you putting this on my heart for a reason? Like, I've been hearing this over and over, and I'm always stirred when I hear that. What is that thing? Perhaps it was a mission trip that comes around every year, and you're like, I should do that. Or perhaps it was an organization you heard about that's sharing the gospel with people, and you're like, I should support them, but you haven't yet. Or maybe local needs here in Lawrence or our own church that you can step into. And maybe even it's action as simple as praying a prayer for someone else. You know, As I understand it, before church on the next few Sundays, you can meet at 9 o'clock and pray for world missions. And see, what this centurion shows us is that belief in Jesus enables us and compels us to act, to have compassion. And he wouldn't have moved, he wouldn't have done this had God not moved in him. And so, as a church, as a body of believers, we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives to the needs around us. Because see, it's humility and compassion that amaze Jesus. But it's also coupled with something else. We amaze Jesus by submitting to his authority. That's the second point I want to make this morning. Start in um, verse 8. Read along with me. Um, But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And so what the centurion does in this moment is he does a little explaining to Jesus about how he understands his authority. He identifies with Jesus. Because he too is someone who has someone over him, right? He has an emperor who tells him what to do. And so when he tells soldiers under his authority what to do, it's just as if the emperor were speaking to his soldiers. He's showing Jesus that he gets it. He understands it. Not just rankings, but he understands in some way how the authority uh, of Jesus works. He shows us what we find in John 12, 49 and 50. Jesus speaks about himself, saying, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And so this centurion knows by faith that what Jesus does, Jesus does what his Father says to do. And that the words of Jesus have the same weight and power and authority as God himself. Well, because he is God. And there's an identification happening between the roles that each play in the world. And it was his humble approach to Jesus and his acknowledgement of his authority that caused Jesus to marvel at his faith. Submission to authority, it's not our default setting, though, is it? It is not our default setting. We inherently resist Authority. I mean, talk to any parent or teacher or youth director or youth leader or Sunday school teacher. They'll it, tell you people often resist authority, right? But when you see that sort of humble submission happening, it's a beautiful thing. It honors God. I said I was going to tell a story about the Pool Boys. I'll, one came to mind as I was preparing the sermon. Um, the sort of idea of humble submission, I got to see it in, um, uh, years ago at the United States Naval Academy. And so, um, during our time on the road playing as a band, um, we traveled all over the country and got to see some really cool things and meet some really cool people. And, and uh, this one place that was unique, well, people often ask us, what was your favorite concert? You know, and that's always hard to do. It's like, who's your favorite kid? Um, and uh and, and i would say i don't know it depends you know and but but one at the naval academy always stuck out to me uh, because we show up we were there to to play a concert for a christian um campus ministry and um, they wanted us to to you know play our songs and then lead worship at the end and and uh and before the concert I was you know meeting some of them the the midshipmen as they're called and they, uh, very smart, intelligent, they're kind of, you know, strong handshake, look you straight in the eye, kind of the people who I know, you know, were, you know, they're physically fit, they're academically sharp, they're leaders, you can just tell this about them. Um, and so as we, you know, we're playing the concert, we got to the portion where we want, we're inviting them to sing along with us. And as we all were worshiping Jesus together, and look out, and I see them, you know, all dressed in their dress blues, they're all nice and... You know, very uh, just cool looking because I'm not in the military. I don't know. It's just cool. Right. And here you see them raising their hands in worship to worship Jesus. And I kind of stood there like amazed, like these are people who who are top of their class, who are who are, you know, um, really sharp. And they they could easily be like, hey, I'm all that. Check me out. You know, I'm at the naval. Like, I'm going to go on and do amazing things. And here they are acknowledging that there is one greater. And that this one greater is worthy of their praise. And no matter what position you might have, and some of you are in positions of great authority, there's always going to be one greater that is worthy of our humble submission. And you can be sure that as you approach Jesus in humility, whether it's during a time of gathered worship like this, or Bible study, or private prayer, whatever it may be, that he will be pleased And that, as Hebrews says, he will reward those who earnestly seek him. And furthermore, look at the centurion's faith in the power and authority of Jesus and how it showed itself. Basically, this man came to Jesus not only with the expectation that Jesus could heal, but that he could do it from a distance. I mean, compare that to other paralytics who needed friends, right, to lower them down through the roof so that they could be in front of Jesus. We see that distance and place cannot obstruct The Lord Jesus. He had faith that Jesus could heal with just a word, not medicine, not religious ritual, but a word, his word, a word from Jesus that had power and authority from God himself. And this is amazing, isn't it? I mean, when you pray, do you pray with that sort of expectation, the power and authority of Christ? I think one of the reasons we don't pray like this sometimes is because we forget we just simply forget how powerful our god is our prayers for ourselves and intercessory prayers are to this same jesus who with the word can heal without regard for distance or place and how comforting that should be for us because think of about it, we live now in 2019 in a time in history where we can't see Jesus face to face, but we, we see him by faith, right? We, we know that when we go to him, that he hears us, and that he can and does perform miracles from a distance. Now, to be clear, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he's actually closer to us than we even think by his Spirit. We oftentimes just forget it. We live and pray and worship as if, as if he's far off, but he's not. He's near. And he's powerful. And so, amaze Jesus by your humble submission to his authority in all areas of your life. And then thirdly, if you want to amaze Jesus, live out a genuine faith. Live out a genuine faith. See, the centurion was shown to be an example for what true faith looked like. Now, was it the amount of faith that Jesus marveled at? Was it the sincerity of faith that he had, that Jesus could see through and knew, oh yeah, this guy is for real? No. It was the object in which his faith was placed. See, the powerful thing about faith as a believer in Jesus is that their faith is in Jesus. Right? It's not in themselves. It's not in someone else. It's not in their material possessions or their health, but that it's in Jesus. That is the key. And there are three components of faith that are important to consider as you think about it in your own life, to distinguish it from worldly or empty faith. And the first question you could ask yourself would be this, is my faith based on true knowledge of God? In other words, is it based on the God of the scriptures or is it my own construct of who I think God is? Second question you could ask yourself is, is my faith convinced of that knowledge? Like, do I really believe this? Or is this just my parents' faith? Or this is just what my church believes. So this is, you know, do I really believe this personally? And then thirdly, and this is an important one, do you rely on it? Do you press into it believing that it will stand? Does it really change how you live? Because if it doesn't change how you live, it isn't true, genuine faith. It's kind of like, Now this is going to be a hard uh, illustration because we're in the heat of the summer, um, but pretend we're in the winter and you're standing in front of a frozen pond. Okay, your faith in this frozen pond—if you stepped out on it—is that it's been freezing for a few weeks, right? So you've got that knowledge that it's been freezing below temperatures or below freezing temperatures for a few weeks, and you're convinced it's frozen because you've already taken a rock, let's say, and you've heaved it out on the pond. And it stayed there. It did not crash through. But now you must lean into it if you're going to step out onto it, right? You, to rely on it, really to have faith in that is to step onto the ice and act. And what are the possible outcomes? Well, you'll either stand on it or you're going to crash through it, right? It all depends on the ice. And here's the difference. Faith in God is sure. It's confident. It's unwavering. It will never crack. And when you lean into God, he's promised to hold you up. Your faith in his promise of forgiveness, of eternal life, and complete restoration is sure, because his word is true. The author of Hebrews said, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In Hebrews eleven six, he says, And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. And isn't it cool that the very thing that can cause God to marvel at us or be amazed at us, which is our faith, is something that originates with him. It's something that he gives to us, and I am thankful for this. That's a good thing, right? Or else we'd be tempted to take credit for our belief in Jesus and be like, yo, what's up? Check me out, right? I'm a believer in Jesus. Isn't that awesome? But no, you can't take credit for it. It's all his doing. It's a work of our sovereign Lord who calls us, who's predestined us, brought us from darkness into light, brings us into the light of belief in Jesus. And this um, idea of true, genuine faith is further illustrated at the end of this story, where Jesus creates a little tension, creates a little tension with the crowd. So he'd been amazed at this man's faith, and he turns to the crowd following him, most likely filled with both Jewish and Gentile people. And he says this, starting in verse 10. He says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa. What's he talking about here? Like... He's saying something about East and West and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Like, you lost me, Jesus. Like, I was with you up until that point of being amazed, and then I have no idea where you went. But this is an important part of the story because it points us to this kingdom of God. It's a picture that includes all of those who come to Jesus with genuine faith, regardless of your social or ethnic background. See, for the Jewish here, this statement of Jesus would have been really difficult to hear. In fact, it might have been angering. Because they'd be saying, wait, you mean to tell me that the sons of the kingdom, which here represents the Jewish people, are not going to be at this banquet feast in heaven? And Jesus is saying, only those who have genuine faith, i.e. this Gentile centurion. And he's also saying... For those who don't believe, there's a very real place of torment, of outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, this language that represents hell. A place where those who die in their sin will go. Which as a believer should motivate one to have even more compassion, right? To share the gospel with people because Jesus says that many will come from east and from west and will recline at this table All those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. Which is a picture of this great messianic banquet prophesied by Isaiah. And it's also a little preview for us. It's a little trailer, if you will, of what Jesus will say later in Matthew 28, where he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We see this in Ephesians as Paul writes, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jesus is showing us that the kingdom of God is often wider, bigger, and more diverse than we think. And that it not only includes people of Israel who come to Jesus in faith, but that it's open to Gentile believers as well. And it blew some of their categories, that God would save Gentiles. Can you imagine Gentiles perhaps running home that day to their families to say, Hey, there's a future for us in God's kingdom. See, our human birth determines our race, but our spiritual birth unites us as members of the body of Christ. There's no national, racial, political, physical, or social distinction in this body, as all who come to Jesus in faith are his sons and daughters. In Galatians 3, 28, He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In the book of Revelation, it says, Jesus ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The diversity found in the new heavens and the new earth will be amazing. We're reminded this morning that the gospel is for all people, all nations. And yet at the same time, we, too, can find ourselves in the business of excluding. Maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, we stereotype, we judge. We kind of like to keep the gospel to ourselves, right? And kind of stay in our own little safe, safe camps. But by following Christ's example, we're not to set limits on those to whom we share Christ with. For we don't know when God will gather people from the East and West and grant faith to someone. He just calls us to act, right? Like this centurion, on behalf of others sharing the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of god and so if you've placed your faith in jesus you can take comfort that as god looks at you that he's pleased he sees his son jesus and we can amaze him we can as we live with humility and compassion submitting to his authority and in living in obedience to him and when we fail to do this because we will and we do what do we do we confess We go to Jesus and we start again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so to conclude this morning, it might be easy for us to walk away and feel a burden and feel a weight of feeling like, man, I just need to be more like that centurion. But that's not the point. While he is a great example of faith, he is not our goal. Our goal is Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see a life of perfect humility, of perfect compassion towards others, of perfect submission to his Father's authority. It was the Father's will to send Jesus to be the mediator between us and God. In a sense, we are paralyzed servants, lying in a bed with no hope. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, and even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. Jesus came on our behalf and took our sins and infirmities and suffered and died on the cross to provide healing, to provide forgiveness from sin. And if you've tasted that, if you've seen that forgiveness, if you know and possess true faith, then your life will look different. Like the centurion, you'll live humbly, compelled by compassion, to serve others. In the last verse in this section, Jesus tells the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the centurion was, I'm sorry, the servant was healed at that very moment. It was a long distance miracle. Jesus' power is not bound by physical proximity. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. And isn't that a comfort to you? Now that as Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, and as we lean on Him in faith, We know that our prayers will be heard. Our verse that we sang in our opening hymn says it very well. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. So if you hear the voice of Jesus today, then respond in faith with a humble heart. Submit your will to him, live under his authority in humility and compassion towards others, and you too. We'll have a faith that amazes Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we are eternally grateful for sending your son, Jesus. We are thankful for the authority and power we read of in your word and, Lord, that we see evidenced in our lives today. We look to you, Jesus, as the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us as we seek to live lives of genuine faith. We want to see others around us come to know this same love. Forgive our prejudices, our stereotypes, and our inaction where you've called us to action. And we ask that you would correct us where we're straying and give us strength by your spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. Help us to walk in humility before you, submitting to you in all things. And we ask this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name.